living. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. I have something I wanna reveal. Something I never thought I'd ever say to y'all. It's something to be honest, I didn't even realize it till my husband pulled my coattails to it. So the word of the week is confession. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. Because I'm here to say it loudly, proudly, yet reluctantly. And if you judge me, so be it. I'm a Tyler Perry fan. Now, do know I've always respected Tyler Perry's blueprint. He built himself into a billionaire filmmaker by going outside every traditional Hollywood mechanism. He knew black people were an underserved group, an underserved audience, and he not only invested in it, he doubled down on it. But to be honest, there were some Tyler Perry projects that were a little questionable. For Color Girls, not sure that was my jam, but players mess up. And the truth is, Tyler Perry has tapped into an unbeatable formula. He has some of the most rewatchable movies on the market. Why Did I Get Married? The Family That Prays, Good Deeds, Daddy's Little Girls, even Acrimony, where we still don't know how Taraji P. Henson got on that boat. Rewatchable as hell. I Can Do Bad By Myself, Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Yo, when she pushed old boy into the bathtub, I know y'all seen that 5011 times. Practically every night, me and my husband have the same routine before we go to sleep. We watch several episodes of Martin. He falls asleep. And then I wind up watching a Tyler Perry movie because every night on Stars they play a Tyler Perry movie. And lately it's been Good Deeds. So I've seen Good Deeds about 35 times. My husband is the one who helped me to recognize this pattern. And then the final straw where I had to come clean, I have started watching all the Queen's Men, a BT Plus series that Tyler Perry executive produces. And now I am firmly in the hive. It's got me in a chokehold, y'all, because it's messy, ridiculous. And I promise you the storylines, y'all wouldn't even believe me. So far, and I'm just halfway through season two, I've seen a stripper suffering from a condition where his penis is falling off because he's been doing something they call tying off. Look it up for yourselves. A baby and the baby's mother stepped in front of a bus. Numerous murder for hire plots, extortion, murder. In this series, they literally put everything trifling in a crock pot and mix it up real nice and serve it right to you. Every fucking episode. It's astounding television. Listen, Tyler Perry gets a lot of shit for the bad wigs, for his one dimensional characters, for coming up with the most foolish plot lines ever created. But I'm not going to lie. This shit is fun to watch. So judge me, at me, or whatever, but I'm here to confess. I am a Tyler Perry fan. Confession, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a model, a philanthropist, co-founder of a skincare line, and someone who has one of the best, this is how I met my husband's stories you've ever heard. Now, I'm big on not defining people, especially women, by their significant others. It's just a reference point, and it shouldn't be the totality of who they are. But just as a reference point, so you know, 
She happens to be married to a very famous actor who also has been a guest on this podcast and someone people once crowned the sexiest man alive. We know her husband as Stringer Bell, Hemdall in the Avengers series, and of course, Luther. But it's past time we get to know the woman who has been critical to his success, a Canadian-born Somali woman who is continuing to step boldly into her purpose. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Sabrina Elba. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Sabrina, now I feel terrible going into this uh, podcast interview because you told me off air as we were talking that you're on vacation right now. You're in Cabo. And I'm like, why is this woman talking to me right now? (laughs) But this just proves how great and wonderful and professional that you are, because I won't lie, had the roles been reversed, I'd have been like, yeah, y'all, I don't know about this interview. (laughs) No, I appreciate you saying that. I think, you know, we really wanted to do this and I'm excited to do it. And it was just about finding that time. And when you're on holiday, you got time. So <laughs> I don't mind at all. This is perfect. This is true. And so I, you are one of the few pairs in, I should say, Jamel Hill is Unbothered History I've been able to complete. So I had Idris on, uh, I think he started this season, maybe, because um, Beast was out and, I, and uh, we did an interview and now I have you. And so I have the, I, I got the Infinity Stones now, <laughs> so it's all good. <laughs> I'm going to tell me you referred to us as the Infinity Stones. That that made my day right there. Totally. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big Marvel head. So, you know, I'm glad you got that corny joke. Um, but before we get started into your career, the company that you two have built, all the work that you guys are doing as global ambassadors, which is really, really outstanding. I'm going to ask you a question. I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? When did I become unbothered? You start with the tough ones, eh? I felt at the cusp of like going into real adulthood, like I was about 25, I graduated university. There was a moment where I felt unbothered. There was a moment where I was very much um, confident in who I was, knew my life trajectory, um, found my place somewhat in the world. Immigrant parents, you know, was going to law school. Felt like I fulfilled their dream at least. <laughs> and then it kind of went away when I met Idris because I sort of had this beautiful tornado come in and shake everything up. I moved to London, started working in a field that I, I didn't think I would be working in. I started doing PR and everything just kind of changed. And I went through a period of finding that feeling again and finding that for me, it was grounded in a, a sort of self-assurance. And I found that again recently. And I would say kind of like when the world was coming to back together after the pandemic, like I want to say like maybe almost a year ago now, right? where I'd gone on a couple journeys and found myself in this philanthropic world that felt like this is what I should be doing. And I would say now I can say again that I feel unbothered. Still bothered about some things though. (laughs) But it's okay to be bothered. It doesn't mean 
that you don't care if you're unbothered. But really, that's just my way of asking people, when did you start feeling comfortable in your own skin? Mm. Now, I have heard a similar stories from many children of immigrants. It's like lawyer, doctor. Those seem to be the two, <laughs> the, the two professions yep. that, um, you know, most, especially obviously the parent. Or engineer. Or engineer, right? That's a good one. Um, especially the children of African immigrants. So how did you let your parents know that you were not going to pursue that law career? <laughs> I mean, funny enough, I kind of didn't. And I think my mom still thinks I am, <laughs> which is a little bit funny. But I, so like I deferred from law school after I did the LSAT and then I was going to go to UBC, which I'm so thankful that that was going to be like, you know, and I, I don't want to say like law school is amazing. I'm not saying anything negative to the craft for so many people who love it and enjoy it on the daily. But I felt it was too early in my life to kind of pigeonhole myself in something before I saw the rest of the world, uh, learned more, just went through a further journey of discovery. And it's funny because if you ask my mom this time, she's like, that's all you did. You took like two semesters abroad. You like traveled every semester you had off. But I, I didn't feel satisfied. I had like this enormous appetite to see more. And, you know, when I was moving to London and I, and I started working in an office, it kind of cemented this idea for me that I don't, this isn't really me. This isn't, and no shade to the nine to five, but like it, it wasn't me. I was so envious of watching Idris be like, babe, I'll be right back. I got to go and travel and like having this very free entrepreneurial spirit and, and, uh, and, you know, a work sense when he wasn't filming that was very much dictated by his time and his feelings. And, and I was like, oh, I want, I want that. I want that right now. And, you know, I think a lot of us kind of crave that and want that. And I thought, all right, I'm going to take a risk and pursue it and, and maybe see if I have an entrepreneurial sense and, and see how I can survive in a world outside of the security and comfort of an office and a day job. And it's a scary place to be, but I feel like it was worth every second uh, that it was scary because it paid off in the end in the sense that I feel so much more satisfied that I have seen and felt and discovered the world in the way that I wanted to. So you grew up in Canada, correct? I did. I was born East Coast Canada, Montreal. Um, shout out to my Quebecers. Uh, and then I grew up a, a bit in Toronto, but I moved to Vancouver when I was 11. So the majority of my young adult and adult life was in Vancouver, Canada. Beautiful, beautiful city. I don't know if you've been uh, just a couple hours north. I haven't. It's on my, it's on my list. It is so close to you. And it is so, you have no idea. I mean, the most humbling trees, massive, expansive ocean, just mountains, beaches. You could see the mountains from the beaches. I mean, it's insane. Canadians are really friendly people. I don't know if you've heard that before. Oh, no, I, I know. So I grew up in Detroit and Windsor borders Detroit. Yeah, exactly. Growing up, we went to Windsor all the time. And uh, people told me that later on, they were like, you know, Windsor is kind of like considered the hood in Canada. I was like, it is? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, is it? Well, I mean, it's an interesting, it's not like Vancouver. East Coast Canada, West Coast Canada are very different. I mean, it's the same like the States, right? You, you'd feel New York is very different from LA. And I kind of feel like that part of Canada is a bit more New York. You know, a bit more cosmopolitan, kind of fast moving, fast paced. Vancouver's a little bit more slow until it's warmer, which that should already like perk your ears up because I know Windsor's not warm. <laughs> so. It is not. And uh, of course, I've been to Toronto, but getting back to what you just said is like Canadians are literally the nicest people ever. I heard the A 
when you said it earlier and I was like, oh, I forgot. Did I say that? You said A, yes. That is so embarrassing. I cannot believe I'm still saying, you know what? It's when I talk about Canada, it's your fault. You brought up Canada because I've tried to like erase <laughs> that word from my vocabulary and it's not. No, right. well, you shouldn't erase it. But, uh, you know, actually, Sabrina, that was your second answer you gave me. You said A before I even asked you about Canada. It's because you said A that I reminded myself to ask you about Canada. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so funny. All right. Well, I guess it's sticking with me. I, I don't know. I can't get rid of it. I'm just going to. No, it, it's 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 totally fine. That's I, I love Canadians. Um, To that end, though, what was it like for you growing up in Canada? Because I believe your parents are Somalian. Is that correct? Yep. My parents are Somali. I'm a first generation Canadian. Um, my dad passed away when I was quite young, just before we moved to uh, Vancouver. So my mom kind of had this big life change when my dad passed away. And she took us all West Coast. Um, and the best way to describe it now, funny, and it might not be like that anymore because I went back recently and felt a little, a little different, but back then it felt safe. It felt like a padded box that you couldn't hurt yourself. And I was very free spirited when I was young. Like my mom was really conservative. I mean, not as conservative as some Somali parents can be, but she was quite conservative. I wasn't allowed sleepovers. I wasn't allowed. So I was like in a box in a box. <laughs> and I found ways to just like punch holes through it. So I would be like sneaking out. And oh my God, I, I was just thinking about this the other day and I was trying to remind my mom, there was a point in time where I took one of her wigs and I put it in like on my pillow with pillows under the blanket. And I used to do that like every other night so I could sneak out because I know she would check on me. And her heart just broke the day that she discovered that I was not that wig on that pillow and all my, and I just remember like, why did I used to do this? But it was this feeling of like, I felt safe enough to explore myself and be rebellious. And there, you know, I live in London now, there are times where I feel like I can't walk out with a nice handbag or a nice watch. Like that's just the reality of living in central London, you know, and back then in Vancouver, we didn't lock our door. The fact that we didn't lock the door to our house, we had neighbors coming in and out. I could leave a bag in the car. It was it was safe. And and that word is the first word that comes to my mind now because I miss that. So how as a first generation um, Canadian, how did you navigate around the issues surrounding identity? So I was the only black girl in my high school, let alone African in my high school. Um, and not to say that Canada isn't very diverse. I mean, you've been to Toronto, you've been to Windsor. There's a massive African diaspora. There's a massive, you know, Caribbean diaspora. But where I was in, in Burnaby, BC, <laughs> at the high school that I was at, it was just me. And there was this kind of sense of wanting to, I never felt, you know, discriminated against directly. It was kind of through you know, jokes or, you know, Canada is a lot more accepting of other cultures, but there was like a period where save the children ads were out in Somalia and Ethiopia were going through a famine and, you know, children with very dire conditions. And that was kind of reflected on me. I felt in a way to say Africans weren't either hardworking or waiting for a handout. And it was so different from what I knew of my family who are all hardworking Canadians immigrated just before the war, um, you know, taxi drivers, engineers, years, a doctor, like my family made up a group of people who I felt were actually a lot more of an accurate description of, of where I was coming from. So I was constantly kind of fighting that like with my friends and trying to say, no, like that's not how Africans are. That's not, that's a part, that's a crisis that's happening now, but don't paint 
the whole uh, picture with that paintbrush because you see one thing on TV. So there was a little bit of trying to make a point of who I was or make a, a stand for my culture, not to say that it was directly an opposing force that was against it, but just sort of this want to um, show it in a better light. And I, and I carried that with me. And I realized that later in life, that same kind of wanting to give people a chance to show who they really are rather than being stigmatized or, you know, put in a bubble of, of, of aid and um, being in that sort of aid bubble. I wanted to show that actually Africa, the continent is so diverse, it's massive, it's huge. There are people who are hardworking. There are people who work harder than anyone I know. And I still find myself trying to, to give a voice or give a, a, a soapbox to people who are in that position so that they can speak up for themselves. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because I do, I remember those uh, Save the Children ads as a kid. And I think the perception it left for us in the States is that Africa was all as a continent, like completely underdeveloped, that there was no sense of technology, that that is how everyone in Africa lived, not understanding. It was just a very specific, awful famine taking place in regions. And to conceptualize that Africa is a continent not a country. Okay. Like that's a, that's a whole different, you know, cause there's people even now who don't understand that. I bet people still don't know that, which is kind of crazy with how big it is. Like how many times America could fit into Africa? You know what I mean? Like it, that's nuts to me. Cause it's, I mean, and now I feel so thankful being able to discover intimately another side of the continent, like literally the polar opposite. I mean, it just could, are like East and West. Like he's on one coast, I'm on the other. <laughs> and to be able to kind of find, you know, similarities, but see the massive differences. And, and I find that so beautiful. Like, and if you haven't been to the continent, I don't know if you have, whoever's listening, if you haven't been, there are so many beautiful places to go. M the most beautiful trips I've ever been on. Yeah, I, I have been. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to go. We spent part of our honeymoon, uh, me and my husband in Kenya. I've been to Ghana, been to South Africa. We honeymooned East Coast as well. We did Tanzania. So that's so funny that you did that. Great minds, right? Yep, I love it. it. And it was beautiful. And especially, I remember we went to Ghana. This was after our honeymoon. We were able to go there. Um, during, it wasn't the height of the pandemic, but it was in 2021, I believe it was. And, um, you know, it was one I couldn't help but note, and I love this, and this is the case in Africa, period. Well, maybe not all of Africa. It certainly wasn't the case in South Africa, but in Ghana, one, it's like I could eat my way through that entire country. It's like the food is amazing. Mm. Two, I didn't know Ghana partied like that. I was like, I got to have a different gear for Ghana. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know they party like that. Was it the year of the return? No, it was after that. See, when all the black people left the States and didn't take me with them, I was mad. And <laughs> so, no, no, it was actually a year or so after that because uh, a friend of ours, he was celebrating his 10th wedding anniversary and they wanted to take a group to, to Ghana. Nobody had been. And so we, we went there. And it's probably one of the few vacations or if maybe the only vacation where I went and I didn't see nobody white for a whole nine days. Right, right, <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> That's so funny. I felt the same way, by the way. Ghana can party. We went the year of the return. That was my first time. And that was, I mean, it was insane. And we, we like easily up till like 6 a.m. Just I went to, we went to this all white party that was like one of the craziest parties still to this day I've ever seen. It must have been like 5,000 people. Like, and just one DJ. I'm like, this DJ must be like, he's on top of the world right now. <laughs> like, 
biggest party. Yeah, friends of mine who went on that trip, they said the same thing, that they were so many nights they were up to sunrise. And I was like, oof, I don't know if I had that gear in me, but I'm sure I would have been juvenated um, by, you know, the party. And I, I, I would have, the adrenaline would have kicked in. So I think I would have been, I would have been fine. <laughs> so that's all good. And the food is amazing, but like, try cooking it. <laughs> My husband still has a, a heavy West African appetite. And I'm like, just learning okra soup and a goosey. And, and I'm still making fufu from the, the powder because, you know, <laughs> this is hard. It's an arm workout. It's patience. You're in the kitchen all day, like, and, but the food is amazing and the spice. And now I can handle, like, I actually make it a point to try and try whatever hottest hot sauce there is. Cause I'm like, I think I'm a champ now. I'm like, I have literally, Idris's mom will burn your mouth off. Like she does not care. She was like, eat it. I should watch you. Do you like it? <laughs> I love it. It's so good. I'm like crying. <laughs> it's delicious. Cause Somalis, you know, we have hot sauce on the side in, in Sierra Leone, Ghana it's cooked it. Yes. Yes. It's, it's baked in. No, definitely. So have you been able to duplicate any of uh, your mother-in-law's recipes? <laughs> I, that is a benchmark and a goal that I will never achieve. It's up there in the clouds, but I, it's tolerable and he likes it and he'll eat it. And to me, mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, since you brought him up, because I, I find your your origin story as a couple to be so fascinating. Um, it's obviously a phrase we've all heard, love at first sight. But from what I read, it really was love at first sight. So explain what happened this night you all meet in, what was it, Slow Jam Sunday or something? <laughs> or Slow Jam Night? <laughs> okay, you open this Pandora's box. I am corny and so cheesy when it comes to this story because to me it was just like really so I, and you know what this is so funny because I had just gotten out of a really bad relationship so I was not this person I was like men are trash they suck I'm like literally ready to just switch it on up or something because I was so over it and I I mean I hope my ex isn't listening but it was awful anyways so I <laughs> I'd come to this party with like a night off of work that I pre-booked because I was working literally every weekend, but it was my girlfriend's birthday party. So I was there kind of by chance. Like it, Slow Down Sunday is an amazing night in Vancouver. It's the one night I would probably go to, but you wouldn't see me out often because I was a weekend worker. Um, I was working at restaurants and, you know, service industry. It's like your, your weekends are taken out. And Idris was filming this film in Vancouver and had one night off in Vancouver because most of it was filmed sort of up north in the mountains. And his stunt double, or like, yeah, yeah, I guess it would be his stunt double, convinced him to go to Slow Jam Sunday. So by chance, we were both there. My girlfriend actually was brave enough to like kind of go up to this only black guy in Vancouver. And she's like, who is this guy? And I was like, I don't know. And she's like, I'm going to go hit on him. And I was like, you go do it. All right. And she was like pretty, you know, gone, <laughs> Claire, poor Claire. Um, anyway, so they're talking for a little while and like, yeah, I thought he was cute. And then she comes over and she's like, oh, I think he's talking about you. And I'm like, really? Oh, oh, really? That's awful. Why would he do that? That's He was talking to you. And I'm trying to be like a good friend. But then I was kind of like, oh, but she's really cute. <laughs> she's like, okay, well, go over to him. 
So I go over and we have like one of those conversations that you just feel like you've known this person for 10 years because we're singing the same songs. Like when a song comes on that I love, he's like, I love this song. I'm like, what? Like, I just had this like cultural connection. He's African. I'm like, where are you from? Like, you know, and then when I went outside, I realized because there's a group of people there, they're like, oh, you're talking to Idris Elba. And I was like, oh. At this stage, like how known was he? So the film that I had seen was Obsessed. <laughs> it's so funny to see that. The Beyonce movie, right? Yeah. I feel Idris Elba now, like the, he, I mean, he gets recognized so much. In that moment, unless you were kind of in that zeitgeist, um, and he was definitely a lot more popular in America, I I don't think I would have known it. Even when they said it was him, I was trying to remember like, oh, where is he? My friends were like, yeah, he's an obsessed. And we're like, oh, yeah. Anyway, so I immediately went, He's not going to talk to me. That was like cute and fun, but he's obviously an actor here for like a night because Vancouver has a lot of that. There's a lot of actors coming in for short-term short-term projects in and out of the city, you know, and you know what that means. And I thought, okay. Um, anyway, so I went back inside. We started chatting some more. He was like, uh, let me take your number. I was like, all right. And then I left and I left with the whole group of girls and we went to another venue because the birthday girl wanted to keep it going and listen to some something a bit more lively than just slow dance. Um, so we go to this other random venue and as I'm about to leave, cause I was like kind of in this, ah, I don't really care. I don't want to be out. I just got to break up. I'm just going to go home. So as soon as they were like kind of drunk enough to not notice I was leaving like, out of there and I'm about to go into a taxi and literally holding the door handle of the taxi and the phone rings. And I pick it up because it's like plus four, four, something like, I'm like, what is that? And I'm like, oh, it must be him. It must be Idris. And I pick up, he's like, don't, don't get in the taxi. Don't get in the taxi. And I'm like, what? Where are you? I'm like, this is so creepy. <laughs> he's like parked up just a couple cars down. And he pulled up right as I was leaving. And he must have saw me. He went, oh my gosh, he's leaving. And then he called and he's like, get in my car. So I got in his car and we spoke till like 8 a.m easy. And it was probably like two at that time. We just had the most intense, amazing conversation. And it was the first time I ever connected with someone to the point where I was like, I went home the next day, called my friends. I was like, I think I found my soulmate. And so when we say love at first sight, like I literally was like, he's perfect. And then we were inseparable for 30 days, I think. And then he had to go and then he came back and then he was there for another two months. And then it was like, okay, well, I've got to go home. So we did long distance for, I want to say it was close to three months. I went to visit once and then it was like, this is hard. Long distance is hard. Respect to everyone doing long distance. And we were like, okay, one of us has to move. I guess it's not you. Let me try this out. And everyone thought I was kind of crazy. And I thought I was kind of crazy because, you know, I was always that person that was very sort of charted my course based on me. Like I was quite selfish in that way. Like I'm going to move here. I'm going to do this. So for me to be moving for somebody else, because I really believed in this relationship, I think it was a little bit out of character, but I'm so happy I did it. And now, you know, seven years later, four years married, I feel I've genuinely found my soulmate. I asked Idris this question when he did the podcast, and I'll ask you the same. I think of marriage as not necessarily a reflection, it's a mirror. So what has this marriage shown you about yourself? Mm, that I need more patience. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but also some like kind of not so nice things. And if I'm really honest, it's shown me that I need more confidence. And I think for me, 
there was always a little bit of, oh, I'm married to like the most amazing human on the planet. Who am I? And Idris was very quick to point out, you can't think like that. Like, what, what are you talking about? You know, I'm, I'm a person, you're a person, we love each other. And I still have moments where I feel like, and it sounds so silly to say, but it's just the truth of, I, I love him so much. I find that I'm like trying to chase and figure out who I am. And he's at a point in his life where he's very accomplished. And, you know, he, he has a journey that he can turn around and look back on and feel proud of. And, and I don't know if I'm quite there yet. So I feel a little behind in life. And a little bit of it is to do with the age gap. But a little bit, a little bit of it is also to do with the fact that he is the, one of the most motivated, <laughs> creative people. Will work all day and never sleep kind of people. And I had to tell myself, you know, don't, don't compare your work ethic. Don't, we're two different people, like, and building that side of my confidence to think I can, I can adapt in this world and, and be motivated for myself in this world in a way that feels genuine um, and have aspirations and have dreams that feel attainable because he'll literally wake up and go, I think I'm going to fly today. <laughs> Where do you get that confidence? And And he'll do it, you know, and and I find myself still trying to make up for that. So that mirror has shown me that I have a lot of work to do or self-work to do in that space to figure out who I am in this world when it comes to leaving a mark. And not that to say that everybody has to leave a mark, but I think we all want to leave the, the world better than we came into it. And we all kind of have like this desire to, to to inflict or create some type of change. And, and I find myself chasing that now, which is a blessing, but sometimes can also feel like uh, a hamster wheel. I, I think a lot of people would appreciate your candor because certainly in my own marriage, like I didn't realize how defensive I was until that's what the mirror showed me. I was like, oh my God, I can be really defensive. Mm. You know, I also am much more sensitive than I thought. And, and maybe it's just because I'm striving to be because uh, vulnerability was always very difficult for me in all the previous relationships that I had. And so in this one, my husband uh, sort of forced me to be more vulnerable, not be indirectly. He didn't know he was doing it, but he was because of his level of honesty and, and candor and vulnerability. Like he forced me into that same space. And it just uh, every time I'm in that space, I feel like I'm flailing. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know what to do that I'm here. <laughs> you know. And I always joke with him all the time. I was like, why am I always the one crying in this relationship? You, not that I expect him to be and not that he's made me necessarily cry. But sometimes we've had like emotional conversations, tough conversations. That is not me. Like most of my friends who know me would say we have never even come close to seeing her cry and I was like and yet all the time I'm like this in this in this marriage god I can relate to that so much I'm also not that person I like you know I'm second oldest of my siblings I have three under me I felt like I was like kind of mom early on because my older sister sort of was doing her own thing and my friends will say oh we never see her cry but when I get emotional with interest I am a wreck I feel like you. I'm the same way. I'm like <laughs> I can't even get my point across because there's so much I guess that we, and this is going to sound like therapy speech, but it's not. But I, I think what I've discovered about that, and not to take your, your story, but you're just reminding me of this, is that I don't ask anyone else for anything. And I don't know if you can relate to this. I don't ask anyone else for anything. So when I go to Idris, I have this cup that is slightly depleted. 
Okay. And it's like, I have given everything else because I don't want to ask for anything else. I'm not asking anyone else to fill my cup. So I go to him with an empty cup of like, fill it for me. I need everything. I need your hundred percent emotional output. I'm going to, and then I'm going to pour it all on you because I don't do it to anyone else. We grow up as black women having to have this kind of tough exterior, you know, have to, and women in general actually have to just, you know, get to it. Just do it so that when we have this moment of vulnerability, we realize, oh my God, I have nothing left to give. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we just um, stumbled into an episode of Coupledom. <laughs> right? <Yes. laughs> but without our spouses. <laughs> I mean, I love the podcast and I do want to talk to you more about that. You guys have great conversations and like Tommy and Cody are two friends of mine. So get out. Yes. I wanted to do an episode for them and then timing just couldn't work out. And I think they don't do the show anymore. Is that right? Yeah, this. Yep, that is true. Which is so sad because it was such a beautiful and important show. I think I've got to reach out to them because I I love them. That was such a great episode. But I coming from you, like being Jamil Hill to say that you liked our podcast. Okay, I feel so validated right now. I'm about to go start 10 other podcasts. Okay, you're making me blush. Now you're making me blush. All right. Uh, Well, look, I I got a lot more I want to ask you about. Certainly uh, the work that you're doing as uh, both of you are doing as as global ambassadors. I do have questions about Coupledom and um, the anime project, apparently, that you and Idris are are working on together. So a whole lot of stuff to get to, but we're going to just take a very quick break and we'll be right back with more with Sabrina Elba. Since I recorded this podcast with Sabrina Elba while she was vacationing in Cabo, I immediately thought of all the times I've been to Cabo, which I am pretty sure I visited Cabo more than any other international city. But there was one particular Cabo memory that came to mind, and I got a story to tell about that time in Cabo me and my crew got dissed hard by Jennifer Aniston and Jason Bateman. It's 2018 and me and my husband, who was then my boyfriend, we went to Cabo with some friends to celebrate Christmas and the New Year. Now we stayed at this fabulous resort, had a lot of pool drinks, a real grown ass time. Well, one night, our group, we went to dinner. I think it was eight or nine of us. Can't remember the name of the spot, but it was a very swanky place. Now, at the time, I was a couple seasons into Ozark, which I think is the best work that Jason Bateman has ever done. If you ain't in Ozark, that's a personal problem. And Jennifer Aniston, while I didn't watch Friends, I fucked with the movie version of Jennifer Aniston. Tell me y'all haven't seen Closer or Horrible Bosses or Office Christmas Party or We're the Millers. Superb Jennifer Aniston stuff. So we're sitting there eating, drinking and having a good time. And at a table that's basically right in front of us, I see Jennifer Aniston and Jason Bateman. And I'm like, oh, shit, it's Jennifer Aniston and Jason Bateman. They also were there with some friends, which included Jennifer Aniston's boyfriend, Boo, at the time, Justin Thoreau. Now, normally, I'm not the one to be rolling up on celebrities. 
But in this case, I was prepared to make an exception because running into Jason Bateman and Jennifer Aniston in Cabo seemed like the kind of cool story that one would tell their friends at parties to impress them. So I moseyed on over there, introduced myself. I said to Jason Bateman, first, just want to tell you, I'm watching Ozark right now, and it is the best work you've ever done. Really amazing. Then I looked at Jennifer Aniston and said, oh, hey, Jenny, girl, I loved you in Closer. And I named a lot of her movies. Not Friends, because I ain't never watched Friends. Now, to be honest, both of them were looking at me like, Harpo, who this woman? And I did not ask for a picture. I didn't ask for an autograph. I did mention I worked for ESPN, but I kept it short and sweet, like under seven minutes. But to be honest, the reception wasn't that warm. It wasn't cold, but it was more like, cool story, sis, get the fuck on. I read the vibes, no problem. I went back to my table, told my friends what happened, didn't disparage Jennifer Aniston or Jason Bateman because I'd interrupted their meal. And it is what it is. Now, my boy decides he's going to send them a bottle of wine. I did not ask him to do this. He decided on his own. And it wasn't a cheap bottle. It was one that cost a few hundred easy. Actually, I feel like it was more in the 400 range. Again, not my idea, but I'm thinking, okay, whatever. We see the bottle arrive at their table. And being real, we thought after they drank the bottle or drank some of the bottle, we might get a thank you, a tip of the cap, a wink, a head nod, a dap, something. Nah, they drank the shit out of that wine. Jason Bateman didn't because I don't think he drinks. They got their bill, bounce, no thank you, no good looking out, not a damn thing. My husband surfaces this story because in his mind, this is an example of why when you encounter celebrities, you play it cool almost to a point where you basically ignore them. He has never let me live this story down. As he likes to say, you did all that jocking to Jason Bateman and all he did was drink the wine and bounce. I got it. I did look like a fool. Not gonna lie, it was very humbling, but I'm never one to hold a single encounter against a celebrity. Now, while I'm not on their level, I've had a couple run-ins with fans where I haven't necessarily been in the mood to engage. I get it. but uh. Jennifer Aniston, Jason Bateman, y'all got something on that $400 wine or nah? And now back to more with Sabrina Elp. Before the break, we were talking about Coupledom, which is the podcast series that you and Idris started, where what I love about the series that, of course, people assume that you just mean romantic couples. And there were certainly that. But the fact that you included business partners in that relationship, like work relationships, I love that you guys define couples in like a broad way, because it really was quite introspective, very good. And um, I just thought you guys together, like as as hosts had like such an easy dynamic. So what was it like creating that project and working together? Oh, man, it was so fun. And, you know, the project actually came out of sort of this frustration at the beginning of COVID when we kind of, uh, well, we both had COVID and we're like on CNN with COVID. Yeah, I'll say, because you guys had the OG COVID. Like you had the first. Yeah, we had COVID round one. You had the COVID round (laughs) one. Y'all, yeah, it was, it was fast. It was actually really scary. And uh, we went through this kind of wellness. So first, you know, first generation Africans, we have all our African family members calling being like, 
boil milk and put ginger in it and honey and do this. And I don't know how you got this thing. You must like, like my mom was telling me my immune system must be shot. Like, how did you get COVID? I knew that your immune system was weak. You're always flying around. I'm like, oh my gosh, it is, I guess. And just questioning like my health. And we went on this kind of wellness journey and whatever that means, like YouTube videos of yoga, like trying to eat like yogurt and I don't know, <laughs> smoothie, <laughs> like sea moss. But actually we found what was missing the most from that journey and that discovery was that no one was talking about what was actually affecting us the most at that time, which was the lack of relationships because we were so separated and so isolated from everyone that we loved. I miss my mom. I miss my friends. I miss my work, like coworkers. I miss everything. And And no one was talking about it. And we thought, what an important conversation that's not being had. So let's have this conversation. And it started with Together Tuesdays on Instagram. Like, how silly. But actually, it was so much fun. Like, we had great episodes every Tuesday on Instagram Live. But Instagram Live was really popping. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Instagram Live was the only interaction a lot of us had with, with community, with each other. Yeah. Right? Um, But we started this just trying to understand how relationships work and what the steps are to just not only maintain them, but to help them grow and to nurture them into something much bigger. And we thought, let's talk to duos we admire. So coupledom, as a word, you're right, generally speaks to a romantic couple. But for us, it was like any two people making it in this world together. So whether it was familial or business or best friends, partnerships, you know, romantic as well, like you said, just what makes you work? And some of the episodes, you know, for us were just so, so nurturing and important because we were coming into it as newlyweds and we genuinely wanted to like, tell, tell us what to do. (laughs) How do you make this work? And we were working together and people always said, you know, don't work with your partner. And we wanted to kind of disprove that because there were so many great duos and couples working with either their best friends or their siblings or their partners or their moms or, you know, and and really making it work. Because I think if you have a shared goal and a shared dream or shared passion that you can get through life together easier. It's one of the first things we learn in school, you know, like the buddy system, hold someone's hand when you go to the bathroom, right? We're better in twos. We are stronger in twos. Um, And we kind of forget that somewhere along the way where we get isolated and we focus on social interactions through our phones rather than face to face. And we wanted to kind of reignite that and felt like the appropriate time. But the, the most interesting thing that we learned and that was a continuous thread through all the episodes was you have to have a strong relationship with self before you can have a strong relationship with anyone else. And you'll find that kind of thread through all the episodes, which actually is the reason we started our wellness brand, Sable Labs, because We thought, well, what does selfless self-care, community-focused self-care look like for us? And it was just this perfect storm of like COVID, couldn't get any products. Idris was using all my stuff. He had time to like mock my nine-step skincare routine. And I was like, what are you talking about, Mr. Vaseline? And And it was just this this discovery time for us. And, And also looking at, you know, like things that we felt were kind of somewhat appropriated as first generation Africans, like bow bob trendy shots at Whole Foods and things that we've been having since we were kids and be like, okay, how do we combine all these things we've learned with that idea of relationship with self and create something? And it turned out to be skincare at Sable Labs, which was probably the the most freeing thing I've ever done is to create something out of a genuine, spontaneous passion. 
I'm called spontaneous passion. Cause like we were having conversations with couples, <laughs> but ended up being like, Oh great. Well, that's great. Skincare. And we just felt that journey just for us, it was just like one thing after the other made so much sense. Like not only the philanthropic work we were doing, finding out how ingredients are sourced for skincare. We also had the time on our hands to look at formulations and realize that most formulations are actually not melanin inclusive. Like they don't contain any ingredients that help prevent things like hyperpigmentation. You're either spending so much money to get you know, brands that I was using in love because they've got a niche line for issues that melanated skin faces, or you're going, you know, let's be honest, Walmart, CVS, Target, that black aisle trying to get some shade. Yep. <laughs> and you don't know where it's sourced and, you know, or what fragrances and synthetics and alcohols and, and everything that's in it that kind of, you know, you get what you pay for, right? So we wanted to create something that was in between that kind of was maximum efficiency on your skin, minimum impact on the planet. So I didn't have to use nine things. So Idris could just understand three things. <laughs> I love the podcast for so many things, but I love it for have, helping us through that journey in our lives and that point of discovery to come to where we have with Sable Labs. And I feel so proud about where we are with the company now. Well, uh, before I ask you more about Sable Labs, which uh, is just for people listening, Sable is just the Elba's backwards. <laughs> I know. I, I was like, oh, that's so brilliant. I was like, oh. And we kept the apostrophe in it. Yes, you kept the apostrophe. Correct. But before I ask you more about the the company um, that, that you all created, just a, a question about a couple of them. So you guys did six episodes. Are there any plans for any more? We did 12, actually, I think. Like oh, you did 12? I only, I only went through the first six, huh? The two seasons. And we've been a little bit busy, but there is definitely more planned. More coming. Okay. We have a couple episodes that we haven't released. Um, so there's there's a lot more. To come. I think you know how that is. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I just wanted to make sure. I was like, this is still going, right? Like, we still, I need some more couple. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. We definitely don't want it to end. And I feel actually now... I mean, every season I felt like that. Like at the beginning of the first, I was like, who am I to, to even ask these questions? Second one, I was like, I have so many more questions. Now I have like a, a kind of sense of understanding around what I want to ask and why we started it enough to be confident enough to say, no, these are the questions we're going to ask. So I feel like this next season will be so much better even. And that's not just to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, for everybody listening, it, it's it's on Audible. It's really, really great. And especially if you're in any kind of relationship, business, romantic, like it's a very good podcast to listen to. So I, I highly recommend. But uh, let's talk about Sabo Labs. It's the company, as you mentioned, genderless skincare uh, that you and Idris started together. You know, it's something important that you said about how I think there is this negative perception about when you work with your husband or with a friend mm. and like the majority of people that I work with are people who are friends of mine. You know, my chief of staff is my best friend from high school. So it's like, we, you know, people always see the downside of that, but I think there's a tremendous upside because these are people who have been in your life that you trust. And I only see the upside of, of working with people. I know there can be, sometimes there can be some sticky situations that's going to happen, but that would happen with somebody who didn't know you for a long time. Exactly. Right. So this is my long winded way of asking, what are the, some of the boundaries as you all are um, in the deep in the throes of this company of Sable Labs? What are some of the boundaries you all have had to set between your working relationship and your personal relationship? I mean, I'm happy I asked that question because I think boundaries is the most important part of that whole conversation. If you can work with, you know, a friend, a loved one, 
a family member, as long as you set those boundaries. So for us, you know, it was very simple things like not bringing the work home to dinner, you know, not sitting at the dinner table and be like, can you just look at this one email that we need you to respond to that, you know, I mean, it just is so busy would be a lot of that, like, babe, I need you to just sign off on (laughs) one thing or, um, and I had to learn to not bring that home because it just became disruptive into, and, and would cause one to sort of bleed into the other. And we had to treat them like very separate things. And I had to put my ego aside and be like, okay, I need a meeting with him. I'm going to go through his assistant <laughs> and schedule it in. And because that's, that's a work relationship when it's at that point. Right. And when it's a date, I'm going to call him and ask him for that on my own because that's our love relationship. So I had to learn to the ways of working for both because he is a busy person and, and I expect the same in return for him to, you know, if he wants a meetings for him to go about the way that he would want me to go about it with him. So those types of boundaries we had to set up very quickly <laughs> because it was definitely going to be a lot of like, and there's an ease to it, right? When you can get something done a lot quicker when you have access to that person a lot more, but we have to understand with anyone that just because you want to work at a certain hour doesn't mean that they want to work at a certain hour. And I'm definitely like a midnight on emails type person. Whereas he's like a 4am person. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like it was midnight. You missed the gun. <laughs> like, Sorry. <laughs> um, so creating those kind of boundaries, but also when we have a failure in work to not take that as a failure in our relationship and to be able to separate those two things. And when we have a win at work, to be able to not take that as a win in our relationship, because then the relationship just becomes about work wins. And I didn't realize that until we, you know, are sitting and cheersing about just work things. So that's taking up the majority of our conversation. I'm like, wait, we forgot about the wins that we should be building in our relationship outside of work. So like it goes both ways. I think boundaries for me was the most important thing. So how do you all handle business disagreements? Like you see something one way, he sees it another way. How do you resolve those issues a greater team (laughs) because because we will come to a mute point sometimes and you know and it, it can be like that in any in any workplace like some people just don't see so we will there has to be compromise of course and there has to be compassion for the other person's version or, or, or agreement or argument um but I also think you need and it helps when you have a couple more people feeding in and be like, actually, maybe this is unbiased people being, maybe this is the right way to go. Maybe that's the right way to go. And then we can go, okay, I'll accept defeat. The greater team thinks that this is great for the company. Happy to do that. But when it is just me and him, sometimes it, it you know, it can get contentious, of course, you know, and, and it's not easy at those points when you're working with someone that you love, because you just want to go, babe, just let me win this one. Like you don't know what you're talking about. And you have to remember, oh, hold on this is a professional work relationship. I wouldn't talk to someone at work like that, you know? So that, that can be kind of hard. Now you both have been especially passionate about a number of humanitarian issues, especially when it comes to improving the lives of people in, in rural communities. You all work very closely with the United Nations International Fund for Agricultural Development. You've been to Sierra Leone and um, visited there and you, and you do just a lot of work a, a, a around the globe. Why was it important to you to make this component of international social justice, a part of your very powerful platform? You know, I didn't know that it was initially. I think I always had sort of a philanthropic 
kind of side to me because my mom was very philanthropic in that sense. She's always been someone who would stand up for someone else and regardless of any situation. Um, it could be very small, but it could also be very big. Like she would fight for the, um, the, the story around or the, the stigma around Africans to change as long as I could remember, you know, and that was something that obviously bled into me, like we spoke about earlier. But I think just growing up in that kind of household, when I had the opportunity and a privilege to be able to find myself on a trip with a UN agency that I feel is one of the world's best kept secrets, like EFAD is not spoken about enough because it's quite different from, you know, organizations like WFP or UNICEF who work on an aid model, which is very important. There's a time and place for aid. You know, when there's a, when there's a crisis happening, when there's a famine happening, you need aid organizations to go in. But the way EFAS structures itself is that it gives people a chance to build a livelihood of their own by teaching them a basic skill, and that skill is agriculture. And when you can live off the land that you literally live on, that changes the whole narrative. And you become independent in that way. You're not waiting for aid or you become um, in a, or you get into a position where you feel um, you can build resilience towards a crisis because the crises won't stop, particularly with the way the climate change is going and how quickly people in rural areas need to adapt. So I felt so privileged to be on this trip. We're in Sierra Leone, like you mentioned, you know, we went with Global Citizen, who I don't know if you know, um, amazing organization that encourages young people to use their voice. And if they don't even have anything in their pockets, you know, you could still sign up, write a letter, speak out, and you get rewarded for it by going to a concert or something. So this amazing organization on one hand that helps build youth advocacy and then the UN just educating me on what rural people are going through. And I was like, wow, because I thought I was going into this kind of, you know, UN typical sort of aid model. They don't even accept private donations. It is literally about changing the way governments spend when it comes to investment in rural areas, when it comes to you know, um, whatever budget they might have built that year, if they're carving it out for aid and not adaptation, what, what are the long-term solutions that we're looking at? You know, aid in, in one sense can be very short-sighted. And when you engage governments in this way, you build a more sustainable model um, that isn't dependent on private donations and things like that. So for us, it was like, wow, I had no idea this existed. And then that one trip spawned this whole mission of like, okay, I want to do everything I can to kind of help people understand what EFAD does, who they are, and you know, and help speak for the with the rural people who don't have a voice. But we're so thankful for the programs that were on the ground when we got there. It's funny because Sierra Leone had gone through an Ebola pandemic, which no one really cared or supported or in the same way that we kind of rallied around the the global crisis that was the COVID pandemic, um, unfortunately. So places in West Africa were kind of left on their own. But organizations like EFAD built systems up that when the informal markets closed, for uh, for example, and women who make up the majority of rural communities had nowhere to go and sell the stuff that they had just grown, they had people who would come in and give loans and help them build more climate resilient seeds and, and find roots around closures and, you know, and, and put structures in place that could help them get through it. And hearing that on the ground, I was like, wow, okay. EFAT stays the course. And I know this kind of sounds like, and probably an advertisement for like the UN, but this is, this is my genuine experience with this agency. And I just thought that has changed and shifted my whole way of thinking about how we should look at development funding and how we should engage governments around development funding for rural people. Because 
we actually need them. They're the ones who grow a third of the world's food. They're the ones who help protect biodiversity in their regions. It's so much different from big agro. Small agro actually is part of the fight against climate change. I mean, if we stopped all greenhouse gas emissions today, okay, and we went completely green, you would still need nature-based solution. You would still need people to replant trees and to protect regions and, and, and biodiversity and mangroves and, and rebuild the structures that we've destroyed. So you can't have the goals that we have in Paris without including rural people. But like 1% of climate financing goes to adaptation to protect rural people. I mean, it's a joke. It's an actual joke. And no one is talking about it because it's rural people who don't have a voice. So it was like great. This is something that I really want to get into. And I'm thankful that now we are you and Goodwill Ambassadors for that agency and get to talk about it on every podium <laughs> and every conference. And I'll keep talking about it. And I think, you know, what EFAT is doing is really great. Well, you, you said you hinted on something or said something that was really important. Um, a while ago, I had Rashad Robinson, who's the founder of Color of Change on the podcast. And he said something that stayed with me. And he said, charity cannot fix structural inequality. And he's right. And so you telling me that they don't even accept private donations is big because the private donations help in the short term. They help, but they don't change structure. You have to change the DNA of a structure in order for it to be sustainable for generations of people. And even in the understanding of the social justice fight in America, I often remind people of that is that that's great that this person can build a school here or this person can develop this this here based off private donations, but it's not going to last unless the government is changed, that it has to be broken and put back together and reshaped. Absolutely. Yeah. So that the equality actually lasts. So it's amazing to hear that you're a part of an organization that understands that fundamentally. Yeah, I know you didn't get into this kind of work for recognition, but nevertheless, you both received uh, the Time 100 Impact Award. It's a very big award, a very big deal. So how did you feel receiving that award? I mean, I still can't believe I received anything from time. <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, I never would. I, the working in the field is so, it, you're, in, you're in a moment and you're, it's really hard to, to take a bird's eye view of what's happening because it always feels like it's in crisis mode and still feels very much in that regard. There's so much work to be done. So to receive an award, you feel like I just started this journey. You know, and, and it did kind of allow us to sit back and go, okay, we've made some big strides and we're thankful for that. But I think really what it did for us is just give us that extra bit of motivation to tackle that next hurdle or the hurdle after that, because it's just, I mean, we've opened a Pandora's box for ourselves with what we can do and what people can do when it comes to advocacy and how important it is to be able to use any platform that you have, because even if you can speak to one person, and I say this all the time, you have a platform to encourage change and to encourage thought and conversation. And that's really what we should all be doing is questioning why things are the way they are, because it's a shame to me that people get so forgotten on this climate conversation. You know, people like literal people who are fighting every day against weather changes that are happening now, because for us, climate change feels like a future conversation. Or we're going to hit that 1.5 degrees, like who knows however long from now, 10 years or whatever. But there are people who wake up every morning not knowing if it's going to rain, if they can grow a crop. Um, they haven't had rain seasons. Like it's literally happening now uh, in the global south and in rural areas. So for us, it's just about 
having the motivation to remember that, okay, it's crisis, 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 but there are changes being made. Uh, and I do feel now a little bit more hopeful um, from the commitments that we've seen. I mean, I'm still having bilaterals with governments who don't know what EFAT is. And I'm like, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> like how many times are we going to have to have this introductory conversation? Because if you are a climate ambassador for our country and you don't know what EFAT is, there's a problem there. I'm happy to, to build and keep talking keep, you know, lecturing government on you guys need to do better because um, government do need to do better. And it's not about necessarily committing more. It's about committing smarter. That's a word right there. So, you know, with you all uh, working together so often from your philanthropy to the podcast uh, to to Sable, I'm wondering if being able to work together in that fashion, you, you know, obviously we see Sometimes um, there are celebrity couples where, you know, one person is maybe the actor or the entertainer and the other person is in a totally different business, not necessarily that puts them in the limelight. I'm wondering, does the fact that you guys work together as often and as much as you do, does that better help you navigate his celebrity? Interesting. I don't know if I navigate it now. But the fact that you think I do. Well, I mean, I just wondered. I was like, oh, well, they work together so often. So because I know it cannot be at times for at least other people I've talked to. It, it is at times not easy to have to share your spouse or your partner with the world all the time. Right. But at least some of you guys have combined your world. So I'm wondering if that helps that part of it. <laughs> it does help. It does help. And, I, and I'm just joking because I do think there are times where I'm like, Oh my God, he is so famous. <laughs> Still, <laughs> I, I actually forget that when we're just like eating Cheetos on the couch, watching Netflix, and then we go outside and it's like, I'm kind of scared. We should probably go back inside. Like, it's a lot of aunties coming up to you. Um, Not the aunties. <laughs> the aunties don't play, okay? Oh my gosh. Oh Lord. Like, all right, all right. But like, I do feel having an understanding of that world in from his side has helped me feel a bit more. And for example, if, um, you know, you, you kind of just came into it and you, you spend the day with Idris and you see someone getting constant love and, and, you know, validation, it's hard for you to kind of think of this person as someone who still has daily struggles and has, you know, confidence that, issues that he might have to get through or, or whatever it is, because he just gets, yes, yes, yes. I love you. Love you. Love you. Okay. 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 But then to go home with him, you would have a hard time kind of understanding, you know, whoa, how does that not flood your system and make you f this huge headed guy? Um, but actually he, he has a really amazing way of separating that from his real life. And I wouldn't have known that that is a very separate thing until I started maybe to feel some of that or, you know, my team were being validating in that same way when sometimes I would question, well, are we saying yes because you think it's trying, you're trying to make me happy or are we saying yes because you, you agree and start to experience some of those things. I was like, okay, I get that. it's very easy to see through it. And when you're on the outside, you kind of, it, it looks very, and we look at people in celebrity, like they're very privileged or, you know, like, what do they have to complain about or mope about? Like they have this perfect life or, um, but you realize actually that can be very destructive. Um, and I don't think, and I don't know if that's necessarily the answer you're looking for, but I don't think I would have known that 
unless I found myself in positions where I felt people were trying to people please me either to get to him or to find something from me. And, uh, and now I have a better understanding of that. Yeah. Well, and you also, um, you're navigating, you know, a, a global celebrity. Um, but it's the type of celebrity too. I mean, it is obviously a great actor, but because he also is like number one in on every woman's <laughs> list of people that they all love, then you're dealing with the whole sex symbol oh, yeah. part of <laughs> him being a celebrity. So how do you navigate that part of it? You know what? You That's another thing you start to see through. Like, I think, like, for instance, when when women would literally come in and interrupt our, like, our hug to be like, it's just, it's just like, and I don't even exist. And I'd be like, oh my God. <laughs> and then, and then the, the funniest part was like, they'd ask me to take the picture. Oh, <laughs> wait, they ask you to. Okay. So let me tell you one boundary that I set is that I tell people who want to take pictures with me. My husband is not my photographer. So we can take the picture. He's never taking the photo. Yeah, I'm so Canadian. I was like, yeah, of course, I'll take it for you. Like, yeah. You, you too nice, Sabrina. You got you to gotta cut that off. You got to cut that off. In that moment, they can't even, like, change their phone camera. They don't remember their code. They, like... Yeah, they checked out. <laughs> they checked out. And it reminds you, like, oh, that's... It's not, it's not even real. There's no real connection happening between these two people. It's just like a... <laughs> kind of... You know, and it, and and Idris would say that, and I'd be like, "No, like she like really likes you," or da da da. And he'd be like, "She didn't even know what her name was in that moment. She's just literally celebrity struck." And I had a hard time understanding what that was, but it, it, that's a real thing. Like people just black out. Like you know, there's there there's no bad intentions there. They just blacked out. <laughs> like they didn't mean to push me aside or like like ask me for the picture. And I I started to realize that, and that's maybe like a a glass half full way of thinking, <laughs> but now I give people the benefit of the doubt. Well, I, you see, that's the, that's the Canadian you. And I appreciate <laughs> that. I do. I do. Well, listen, before I get you out of here, um, there is a game that I play with every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is unbothered. Oh, I love the game. I know. Cause you guys have an awesome game, uh, that, that you play on couple them, which I like the questions are like really, really funny and amazing. And also pinpoint. So yes, I have a similar game where you do have to make a choice. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. And I give you two choices and you have to pick one. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. So first up, a good body scrub or a good facial? Good facial. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I got to go with the body scrub to myself. I was like, really? See, I get irritated from body scrubs depending on what. They are, I don't know, I did this like Moroccan one once where they like really scrub me. <laughs> and then I had like, I was red for like two days. I was like, I'm in black. I didn't even know I could turn red. Like, I was like scared of that now. <laughs> the bigger Canadian superstar, Drake or Celine Dion? Celine Dion. I'm so sorry, Drake, but Celine Dion is my karaoke like that is me okay like oh my god i love celine dion nobody could tell me nothing about celine dion wait first of all you're brave to karaoke celine dion <laughs> but it doesn't have to sound good it just needs passion okay that's right you just showmanship that's all we're talking about showmanship it's the showmanship it's the dedication you know that's so if, if you come to karaoke with me one time you will definitely hear some celine dion okay going to the met gala or seeing beyonce in dubai oh Oh, oh my gosh. 
But what if Beyonce is at the Met Gala? See, I feel like that don't count. Because <laughs> you're seeing a whole production in Dubai. You saw a whole production there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, that was amazing. That was once in a lifetime experience because she was so like it was like singing Beyonce. Like she took the time to to just grace us with her beautiful voice. It was the you know, because the last show that I had seen was a lot more performed in the sense. There's a lot of choreography, a lot of showmanship, but this was just her in a microphone. And I was like, I'm dead. <laughs> that was beautiful. And I, and then we were standing next to, oh my God, Chloe and Haley, who are literally like the nicest, most beautiful spirited people I have ever met. And just like seeing their eyes lit up and like, I was like, oh my God. Anyways. That was amazing. But Met Gala, I'm such a fashion stan. I love seeing what people are wearing. So it would be Met Gala with Beyonce showing up. With Beyonce showing up. I, I love the asterisks you throw in there. Luther or Stringer Bell? Luther. Haven't seen The Wire. I haven't. And now, I can't watch it now because now I know. Now you know how it ends. Yes. Luther, I haven't seen either, but I've seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Luther, the movie was was really good. I, I enjoyed it. But you know what? Regardless if you were married to Idris or not, I would still be like, you haven't seen The Wire? <laughs> you got to watch The Wire, Sabrina. You have to. But you know, I'm also not a big, I can listen to crime all day. I can listen to true crime all day. But I never like watch a crime show. Like I was never a CSI person. I was never like, and those are two crime heavy shows, right? But The Wire is meant to be a lot more substantial and, and, and real, right? Correct. It's different. It's like it's it's really telling a very rich story. And I, I think that The Wire is the number one television drama of all time. I am a Wire stand. So, so for you, it's Stringer Bell over Luther. <laughs> I would take Stringer Bell over, over Luther. It's hard. It's hard, but I would. I mean, Stringer Bell is fine. So <laughs> for me, I get out from one point of it, I'm like, hmm, you was looking really good. <laughs> But you, the, part of the reason why I want you to watch it, because then I would love to come back to you at some point and ask you, did you think you deserved to get killed? And I'd love to, see, <laughs> love to hear what you would say. Okay, <laughs> that's my homework. Yes, at one point I need you to turn him in the couch and be like, you kind of had that coming. <laughs> <laughs> would he disagree? He can't disagree. It, that, that, it's, it's just a, a mountain of reasons. But uh, listen, I, I'm going to let you judge for yourself. I'm not going right. to take the jury right now. So uh, I'll let you judge for yourself. Okay. And finally. Okay, great. Last one. Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter? <gasps> That's Those are my two favorite things. I know this. That's why I asked. <laughs> I can't, I, These are all setup questions in case you didn't realize this. <laughs> I literally cannot choose. I love both of these things so much. I'm such a huge fantasy nerd or sci-fi nerd. And I, it's not right. It's not right what you're doing. <laughs> it's not right. The fate of the world depends on it, Sabrina. Which one are you picking? Oh, my God. <sighs> okay. Okay. Harry Potter, because there's more black people. <laughs> <laughs> That is fair. Fair. That's that's one of the best ways in the history of this podcast that anybody has decided a choice. Yes, more black people. Bam. <laughs> there you go. Oh man. Although Amazon's new show. Yes. They, it was great casting. I applaud them. So yeah. <laughs> well, look, I just want to thank you so much uh for spending this time with me. Despite being on vacation, despite being in Cabo, you need to it's I, it's 10 a.m. there. Go have a drink. You're allowed when it's in Cabo. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a joy, honestly, speaking to you. So happy to take any time out. 
All right. I appreciate it. Okay, kids. Sabrina's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fucking I'm bothered. Now, we all knew that once Juneteenth became a national holiday, we were going to have to live with some fuckery. I just didn't expect us to be the ones to engage and create said fuckery. In Greenville, South Carolina, organizers of a Juneteenth event posted banners in downtown Greenville to promote the event. That seemed simple enough, but things got a lot more controversial and complicated because the organizers of this event, who are black, put pictures of multiple ethnicities on each of the banners. Black folks, Hispanic folks, and yes, white folks. And fuck it, I'm bothered. Now, I know what the organizers were thinking. Let's make this event as inclusive as possible and show other races they also can take part in Juneteenth, which became a federal holiday two years ago and commemorates the day in which enslaved black folks in Texas were finally informed of their freedom, which came more than two months after the end of the Civil War and two years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. The Juneteenth event organizers apologized for the banners on Facebook. And here's one of the organizers explaining why the decision was made in the first place. The images on the flag um, were very intentional. And it, it was intentional for the fact that no matter what you want to do, it takes everybody to come together and to support and to push any vision forward. And we have for so long been asking for a seat at the table. We have been knocking at the door, include us. And now that we have a seat at the table, the last thing we want to do is what's been done to us for years. The problem I have is the immediate rush to center everybody else but us. A lot of black folks have been celebrating Juneteenth for years hosting and putting on events without relying on any outside help or interest, carrying the banner for a holiday that largely was ignored by mainstream America. That is, until being curious about Black people and investing in Black people briefly became trendy after George Floyd's murder. White people, brown people, Asian people, all people should learn about why Juneteenth is important and deserves its own place in American history. But you can learn, celebrate and educate yourself on cultural traditions that aren't your own, while also having enough respect for those other cultures to understand that you aren't entitled to be centered. You are not the star of the story. You're a guest in somebody's house. That's how you should see it. Part of the racial trauma we deal with as black people is feeling that unless white folks are included, our plans, ideas and inspirations have a ceiling that only white folks can unlock. We have achieved freedom, but until we stop tying our self-worth to white validation and support, we will never achieve full liberation. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. 
from Unbothered Inc. Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7'5 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it. I was born to get it, and you don't forget it. Sit back for 